What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and with all the chaos in the college football world over the past couple of weeks, we put the Scouting the Enemy series on hold after we did the Auburn episode in late July. If you guys have been with us for a long time, I know a lot of you have, you know that we do this series each and every summer. We put a lot of time, a lot of effort into the episodes in this series. You know, with film breakdown, the stat research, creating the show outline, recording it, then editing it all in, it's about 12 to 15 hours per episode, I'd say, on average. So after that Auburn episode, I think that was about a month ago, we were a little hesitant to keep churning them out until we got some more clarity on whether the 2020 season was actually going to happen. And I'll be straight up with you guys. I just didn't want to spend all the time it takes to produce these episodes if it very well could end up being all for naught, if we didn't end up having a season, if things got canceled. And we didn't know. We didn't know for a while. There was touch and go for a couple of weeks, but now we have a little bit more clarity. We pressed the pause button on those episodes for the last month, but now that it does appear the SEC is at the very least going to give this a go, like try to give this a go, there's obviously still no guarantees. Things are still touch and go, but... I feel a little bit more optimistic about us at least getting to the season than I did maybe uh, three or four weeks ago. So with that renewed optimism, that enhanced clarity, we are back at it again today with our Scout and the Enemy series. And today we are previewing the Missouri Tigers. Normally, you guys know how we do this. We go down the schedule in order, but obviously the schedule has changed and Missouri was next up before chaos just exploded onto the scene. That was the team I was working on before we paused things. So that's where we are going to pick it up today, even though I know with the new schedule, we play them much later this season. And then we're going to kind of work our way through the rest of the teams on the schedule that we have not covered yet throughout the next month. But today, it's all about the Missouri Tigers. And with a new coaching staff coming in after a five-year stretch in which this Missouri program went 30-32, and this is a team that most people are, are kind of just writing off this year. I think that's the general consensus here. You don't hear much talk about Missouri. You know, coming into last year, there was a lot of talk in the preseason right around the time of SEC Media Days about Missouri maybe being a dark horse in the East with a schedule that really set up for, for what could have been a run for them. And look, I'll be honest, we were on that as well. In fact, we were ahead of the game on that before the media kind of jumped on in general. Charlie and I both... We're pretty open in our expectations that Missouri was going to have a, a good season. I think Charlie, and Charlie, I'm so sorry, don't hate me. I don't mean to put you on the spot like this, but I think she had them going 11-1 on our predictions episode last year. I had them going 10-2, so I wasn't you know, that much better in my Missouri prediction. But that was obviously predicated on them being healthy throughout the entire year, and that certainly was not the case. But there was a lot of hype coming into the season for them last year. And as is usually the case with a team that was really hyped the previous year, they end up letting everyone down, they kind of fall on their face. Well, the next year, people will kind of hold that against them and no one wants to take them seriously. And I think Missouri kind of falls into that category this year where most people are just kind of writing them off going into 2020. But 
Is that the right attitude to take towards this 2020 Missouri team? Or is this maybe the year where they actually surprise people? Is this the team that when you expect them to do well, they kind of fall on their face? And when you when you have no expectations for them, they rise up and actually have a much better year and exceed expectations? That's kind of what I want to explore today throughout this episode. And let's start at the top of the program with the head coaching change. I think we have to start there. A big part of me thinks that former head coach Barry Odom Got a really raw deal, especially when it comes to last year. I really hated to see him get fired because he was a true Missouri guy. He played there, he coached there, he worked his way up the ranks, and he spent 18 of the last 24 years there as either a player or a coach. And I just hate to see a guy who embodies a place, who loves a place like Barry Odom loved and probably still loves Missouri. I hate to see a guy like that end up getting fired because I kind of try to put myself in the in those shoes. Like, what if that happened to me? Like, what if I had taken the college football coach route and I worked my way up, I spent 18, 24 years at Georgia, finally get a chance to be the head coach and do a pretty good job and have a really bad year where things kind of just spiral out of control. It's a really bad look and I end up getting fired from this place that I have given everything to, that I have loved for so long. And that, that would be, I, I don't know how I could even possibly begin to deal with that. So I, I really, my heart goes out to Barry Odom there. But in fairness to the Missouri Brass, the Missouri program under Odom was, it, it was mediocrity personified. And that's just kind of what they were the past couple years. They went four and eight in, in his first year on the job. But then after that, he stabilized the program with, with a seven and six year two that they actually were 7-5 in the regular season and lost to Texas in the bowl game that year. I think it was a Texas Bowl that year. Then in year three, they actually improved to 8-5. and five. They were 8-4 and four in the regular season. Again, lost the bowl game. That time was to Oklahoma State. I believe that was in the Liberty Bowl. And then they fall back down to 6-6 six and six last year. But that first year was Odom's only losing season on the job. And I have a major issue with holding last year against him and using that as the pretext to fire him. Is if you remember back to, to last offseason, Missouri was handed down a one-season bowl ban that they appealed. And the NCAA just royally screwed them over, in my opinion, because they did not rule on that appeal until the very last week of the regular season. So that was hanging over their head for basically an entire year. They really did them wrong. And then on top of that, starting quarterback Kelly Bryant, you know, we obviously know transferred in from Clemson as a grad transfer. He suffered a hamstring injury against Kentucky in October. I was actually watching that game and saw that happen live because that was during our bye week. And as soon as he went down in that game, I, he, I remember vividly, he was, he was rolling out to the right. He scrambles. He tried to get about, you know, five, six yards, pick up what he could. And then you start to see him pull up and he reaches back, grabs, I believe it was his right hamstring and kind of just stumbles out of bounds. And when that happened, I said, oh God, their season is probably over. It's all done because without Kelly Bryant, they were going to be in, uh, in serious trouble. And that turned out to absolutely be the case. So Brian goes down to a hamstring injury against Kentucky in October. He missed two full games, missed our game. Remember, the Kentucky game is when he goes down. They had a bye week after that, and then we were up next. So going into that week, there was kind of uncertainty. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Like, what's it going to be? He ended up not playing against us. He misses two full games. And then when he did return, he was a shell of himself in the games he did play after that. He could not move at all in the pocket. It was actually painful to watch. And when you are a dual-threat quarterback that relies on your legs— 
that just ain't going to work out very well. In fact, they should have beaten Tennessee at home late that year. I mean, if Bryant was healthy, I, I firmly believe they would have beaten Tennessee. There were plays out there to be made with his legs. That could have changed that game. They ended up losing that game 24-20, to and they had chances. But he was just, uh, again, a shell of himself. He could not move. He could not use his legs that were really what made him the quarterback that he was. So that was really unfortunate. And that got held against Barry Odom, I believe. And look, they did suffer two inexplicable losses. You have to to throw that out there. They lost 37-31 at Wyoming in week one, which kind of threw some cold water and all that preseason hype. But that was really just kind of a weird spot where that may have actually been the biggest home game in Wyoming history. So that's, I mean kind of in some way understandable week one really weird spot but what I think was the far worse loss and truly like unforgivable it was that 21-14 loss in Nashville to a flat-out abysmal Vanderbilt team and that Vanderbilt team last year was bad and, and that might ultimately have been what got Barry Odom fired and, and then of course after that the limp to the finish line they started the season five and one then they lose five in a row before rallying to beat Arkansas to get to six and six to end the season. But it was all for naught because the NCAA comes down to rules in that final week of the regular season that even if you get to six wins, you can't go bowling. But despite the mitigating circumstances, the Missouri Brass decided to move on from Odom. I think largely that was because of attendance and interest in the program had just dropped so much. I mean, towards the end of the season, we're talking like Vandy-level crowds when opposing teams don't sell it out. Like, it was just Van- like if you imagine the Vanderbilt Stadium with just Vanderbilt fans allowed to be in there, that's the kind of crowd that we're talking about at Missouri home games. And guys, that's a proud program. I mean, they love Missouri there in that state. They really do. I mean, I- I've said many times on this podcast, going to Columbia, Missouri is my favorite road trip Period. From the first time he went there, what was it, 2012, when they first entered the conference, it was that it was the grow man football game, right? And I, I fell in love with that city. It was fantastic. It's the closest thing to Athens that I that I've been to for a college football game. It, it's it's a really great place. Got a really cool vibe. A lot of school spirit there. And when you look in the stands and you see that crowds, I mean, the, the same is maybe what like 30 percent filled. Like that just can't be allowed to happen. And when you just drop $98 million on a stadium renovation in addition, that has to be corrected. Like you, you gotta have some people come to the games so you can make up that money. So what do you do when fan interest has waned? Well, you bring in a fiery new coach to drum up some excitement, some optimism, right? Some energy in the program, trying to inject that energy into this program. So enter new head coach, Eli Drinkwitz, who has a reputation as a great offensive mind. He's actually... From the Malzahn coaching tree, he started at the high school level, actually at the same high school that Gus Malzahn coached at in Arkansas, with Springdale High School. He was promoted to offensive coordinator at Springdale when Malzahn left to go to originally Arkansas. Then Malzahn gives him his break at the college level with a quality control job when Malzahn was the offensive coordinator at Auburn before he got the head coaching job. Uh, then Malzahn, you know, he moves on to Arkansas State eventually, and he gave... Drinkwitz, his first on-field coaching job at Arkansas State, but from that point, their paths kind of diverged after that. Drinkwitz stayed on at Arkansas State when Malzahn left, then he goes to Boise State for a couple of seasons, and that's where he kind of learns to incorporate some different schematic things into his scheme than what Malzahn kind of does traditionally. 
He eventually became the co-offensive coordinator there at Boise. Then he gets a Power 5 OC job at North Carolina State, spent three years there in that role before getting his first head coach job at Appalachian State last year. I mean, he's only been a head coach for one season. It has zero Power 5 experience as a head coach. But he did a really nice job at NC State. By the time he left, he improved their offense by 44 yards a game. Not Nothing earth-shattering there. Like That's not a Joe Brady-level effect on offense, but that's still a good job. And I've heard some people praise him this offseason by kind of pointing out how much NC State's offensive production dropped last year after he left. And you can say that. I mean, it's true statistically, but I think you have to look at the context there also. Sure, their offensive production, total offense dropped from 456 yards per game in his final year as a coordinator to 380 yards per game last year. But that's also largely because quarterback Ryan Finley, who was really good for them at NC State, he graduated. And then last year, they kind of had a revolving door at quarterback. I think they had three different guys that started games from that last year at least. Remember Bailey Hockman, right, who was committed to us uh, in Mark Rick's final season. And then Rick gets fired. Kirby comes in. Hockman's not really his guy. He zeroes in on Jake Fromm. That's who he wants. He has a relationship with the family because they recruited him in Alabama. Because let's remember, Fromm was committed to Alabama at one point because I mean, Rick basically chose Bailey Hockman over Jake Fromm. I was actually at the seven-on-seven camp at UGA when Bailey Hockman committed. And Jake Fromm was there too. His uh, Houston County team was there playing just like McKeachin was there playing. And I watched both those guys that day at that camp and I thought Jake Fromm was head and shoulders above clearly the better quarterback but we went with Bailey Hockman I remember him kind of celebrating there with his team after after he committed I guess that was what June 2015 but anyway Bailey Hockman yes that Bailey Hockman he was one of those three quarterbacks at NC State last year didn't start the season as a starter then but their starting quarterback to open the season really struggled out of the gate so Hockman got his chance and he played pretty well at times uh, dealt with some injuries I believe as, as well but he ends up getting benched, and they go with another guy, a true freshman who is kind of like their big-time recruit. So they were just struggling at quarterback last year. So bring this back to Missouri. Sure, Drinkwist did a really good job as offensive coordinator, and their offensive production really dipped last year. But I don't know if that was just because he left. I think that was part of it also. I think a bigger part of it may have been the fact that quarterback Ryan Finley, who was really good for them, moved on to the NFL, and they just did not have an answer at quarterback. So I'm not sure just looking at what NC State's offense was with him and what they were immediately after him. I'm not sure that really tells you as much as some people would lead you to believe, just because I don't think it's as simple as saying, like, hey, black and white, their offensive production decline was based on just the fact that Eli Drinkwitz left. In fact, as far as this year is concerned, he hasn't really made an immediate splash anywhere that he's been with, with an offense. Like, in year one at NC State or Appalachia State, in his first year at NC State, he improved their offense from 412 yards a game and 4.63 yards per play to 416 yards per game and 5.75 yards per play. So yeah, they were more efficient, but like the total offense numbers weren't really that different at all, like barely different. Uh, and they were also very good at Appalachian State last year, but again, he only improved their offense from 431 yards per game to 433 yards per game in year one. And they were actually slightly less efficient at Appalachian State last year, going from 6.5 yards per play in 2018 to 6.2 yards per play last year. Now, of course, that is admittedly a very small sample size when we're only talking about two stops. But what that would, at least on some level, seem to suggest for this year's Missouri squad is 
to maybe not expect that massive of a jump in offensive production in year one. I think you can you can maybe draw that conclusion, but again, context here, there's one huge caveat to that idea. Drinkwitz walked into pretty good offensive situations at both NC State and Appalachian State. At least they weren't train wrecks offensively, but that Missouri offense was statistically a train wreck last year. I mean, late in the season, they went 10 straight quarters without scoring a single offensive touchdown. That's two and a half games, guys. Like, is that even possible? Like, how do you even do that at the Power 5 level? So given that they are just coming from a much lower point than either NC State or Appalachian State were when Drinkwitz took over those offenses, there's just more room for improvement with Missouri this year. And so I imagine he's going to have a positive impact on their offensive production in year one, maybe more so than he did in year one at NC State or Appalachian State. And one more thing I do want to point out before we get into the offensive and defensive personnel is that while our records were wildly different last year, I mean, obviously we went 11-1 and the regular season, they went 6-6 six and six in the regular season, our seasons actually, in like some weird way, followed a very similar pattern statistically. Just like it was for us last year, it was a disparate tale of two sides of the ball for Missouri. Both teams were led by their defenses. No, their defense was not as good as ours, but they were still top 15 nationally. And both teams had very stark splits offensively between the first half and the second half of the season. You guys know how last year went for us. We averaged 505 yards a game over the first six games. And then after that, after the midpoint of the regular season, we only averaged 336 yards a game. Missouri, very similar. They averaged 474 yards a game through the first six games of the year when they were 5-1 and one to open the season. And then it dropped all the way down to 274 yards per game over the final six games of their season. And on top of that, both teams can also, in my opinion, largely trace that second half of the season offensive decline back to a specific injury. For us, we all know it was Lawrence Cager going down against South Carolina. Yes, he played a little, he played against Florida, he played that entire game, was a difference maker in that game, which kind of goes straight to my point. He played some of the Missouri game, actually was playing really well, then went down in that game for good. It was, it was done for him after that. So when he went down, our offense was entirely different. We couldn't do anything offensively. And then for Missouri, it was Kelly Bryant going down early in the Kentucky game. That was the difference for them. After that point, their offense was a shell of itself. And really, neither offense was really able, ever able to recover from either the Cager injury in our case or the Kelly Bryant injury in Missouri's case. Now, we ended up with a much better record despite following that similar pattern to Missouri because we just, we still had better personnel. We know that. They were good on defense. We were elite. We both struggled on offense the last half of the season, but they struggled more because we still just quite simply had better overall talent. So I don't know. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean anything for this year at all, but just an interesting observation that I kind of picked up on as I was preparing for this episode and kind of just watching how both of our seasons played out. But anyway, both offenses, Georgia's offense and Missouri's offense, following that similar pattern from last year, well, they both get fresh starts in 2020 with new leadership And as I said, with Eli Drinkwitz and his background as an offensive guy, I do expect there to be at least some moderate improvement 
in offensive production for Missouri this year. So let's move into the personnel to see just how likely that is. And as always, when talking about offensive football, it starts with the quarterback position. So we're going to open there with the personnel discussion. Kelly Bryant is gone, and there is at least ostensibly a quarterback battle of sorts in Columbia right now. It's really three guys, in my opinion, that are vying for this quarterback job. Sean Robinson, who is, in my opinion, the leader in the clubhouse. He's a redshirt sophomore transfer from TCU, had to sit out last year. Then you got redshirt junior Taylor Powell and redshirt freshman Connor Basilic, who's a former four-star prospect for them, pretty big-time recruit for them. He tore his ACL in the, in the season finale against Arkansas, but from all accounts, it seems like he's probably going to be back and at least going to be cleared once the season opens. And we saw both those guys, Taylor Powell and Connor Basilic, last year against us. Remember, Kelly Bryant did not play, so they kind of had a little rotation there. Powell, Basilic, they both got in the game. Neither guy really did anything. I think they combined like 148 yards passing total between the two of them. But those are the three guys, Sean Robinson, Taylor Powell, Connor Basilic. Now, Drinkwitz has already come out and said, that he will not be naming a starter prior to their week one game against Alabama at home, saying that they are going to use it to try to get any advantage that they can over Alabama. And honestly, I don't fault him at all. I actually think that's the right move. I know as a fan, it sucks if you want to know who the guy is going to be, but look, it gives your team at least some sort of an advantage because the Alabama coaching staff, really more the GAs and the quality control guys, they have to spend a lot more time preparing because they have to put tape up on all three of those guys instead of just being able to kind of single in and zero in on one guy. So again, I would call Robinson the leader. He started seven games at TCU back in 2018. He's a former top 200 recruit, so uh, a pretty high-profile recruit for TCU back in the day. He's a dual-threat-ish quarterback, not the most dynamic runner, but certainly a capable runner. He averaged 37 yards a game rushing when he was a starter at TCU for uh, about half that season. But man, he, as a passer... He really did struggle with decision-making through nine touchdowns to eight interceptions. Going back and watching some of those games, I mean, I watched some play a good bit in 2018, especially the Ohio State game in week three. It was a pretty high-profile game. And like he flashed at times. You could, you could see that there was talent there, but, man, the decision-making as a first-time starter was very questionable at times. He threw way too many interceptions and some very bad interceptions at that. But again, like he did flash potential, especially against Ohio State. That was a big-time matchup early in that season. He uh, had a, a, a good game by most accounts, 60% completion percentage, 308 yards against a good Ohio State team. But he did throw two interceptions, some some decisions that really hurt them in that game. Because it was a pretty close game through throughout most of the game. Ohio State kind of pulls away later on in that game. But it, one thing I do want to throw out there, because I think this, this does matter. I think it has to be mentioned. He did struggle at times with accuracy and decision-making, but he, it came out later that he was suffering from a shoulder injury most of that year. And actually, when he applied for immediate eligibility at Missouri when he transferred, he applied for that immediate eligibility saying that he was mistreated at TCU. And basically, the implication was that he was forced to play with an injury. Of course, TCU refuted that. And ultimately, he did not get that immediate eligibility. So maybe there wasn't all that much evidence to suggest that. But that's certainly what he claims. So that might have accounted for some of, the, especially some of the accuracy issues. It was a shoulder injury. Now, the decision making, I don't know if a shoulder injury really accounts for that. But you had to talk about that when you talk about his performance as a starting quarterback at TCU. Now, Powell did not impress last year. Obviously, we saw him 
in Athens last year. He only completed 46% of his passes last year. The guy, I, I just don't think he's a long-term solution for them. Baselik, maybe we did not see as much from him. With the ACL injury, it's just tough to know. So that's why I think Sean Robinson right now is probably the leader in the clubhouse. But whoever wins that quarterback job is going to need somebody at wide receiver to step up because that group as a whole, they just didn't get it done last year. They did not make a ton of plays from Missouri. And sure, the quarterback play, especially once Kelly Bryant was injured, wasn't great, but it wasn't really about the quarterback play. When you watched them play last year, the receivers just really did not make enough plays for them. And honestly, going into this year, I'm not sure who from that roster a year ago, all the guys that are returning, I'm not sure who among them is ready to jump out and be a big time player for them this season. I thought it would be Jalen Knox going into last year. As a true freshman in 2018, he had a really good true freshman year. 27 catches, 419 yards, three touchdowns. But he did not build off that last year. In fact, he took a pretty big step back. Only had 19 catches for 307 yards last year, one touchdown. Cam Scott's a guy who flashed at times, was their big play threat for them, but only had 17 catches on the year, 328 yards. Yeah, 19 plus yards per catch. But he only had five catches in the last six games combined when things started to fall apart for that offense. He was nowhere to be found. Sure, Kelly Bryan was hurt. That was absolutely a factor there. But he didn't do much at all. Uh, of course, Albert O, Albert Okawegwanam, their star tight end, he's gone to the NFL now. Barrett Bannister is a guy that was a former walk-on that actually probably became their most consistent receiver down the stretch of the season. But, I mean, he's a former walk-on. Sure, yeah. He's a solid, stable guy that does all the little things right, but he's not a guy that I that I would certainly feel comfortable counting on to be my big play threat in the passing game right now. The guy that I think has to be that guy for them this year is a guy that was not on the roster last year. It's a guy named Damon Hazleton, who's a grad transfer from Virginia Tech. He was Virginia Tech's leading wide receiver in 2018, just a little under, I think, 900 yards that year. But then in 2019, he uh, was still really good. Didn't have quite the same season he had in 2018. He was their second leading receiver, but still a good receiver. He's a, a big physical target, 6'3", 215 pounds, has good speed as well. He has to be that guy for them this year. I think that's what he was brought in to do. And if he ends up being that guy, that true playmaker on the outside for them, then I think the other guys are good enough to be complimentary pieces. Jalen Knox, if he gets back to his freshman form, Cam Scott can be a, a big play threat opposite him. Bannister is a good complimentary piece. Those guys can be good complimentary pieces if Hazleton can be that guy. But if Hazleton does not step up and become that guy for them this year, which he's done that at Virginia Tech before, so I think there's a good chance that's going to be the case if they figure out the quarterback position. But if he doesn't do it, then I just don't know who it's going to be for them at receiver this year. If you look at the running backs, you look at the backfield there, they have a really good duo at running back. Larry Roundtree is, is their more traditional back, and Tyler Beatty is more their hybrid type guy. Roundtree, I think, is a really good player. He was a 1,200-yard rusher as a sophomore in 2018. Certainly didn't have that caliber of a year last year for a lot of the reasons that I've already laid out. Was under 1,000 yards for them last year despite playing in every single game, but I still maintain this guy is a good running back. He's got a physical style, but he also has good speed, good short area quickness. I think he's a really high level back when everything around him is working well. You we also have a passing that's working in conjunction with what he what he's able to do on the ground. And like we kind of saw, not it certainly wasn't to the same degree, but we saw that a little bit with DeAndre Swift last year. His numbers weren't quite what they had been in the past. Well, he had a good year, a good, a very good year, but with our issues in the passing game, especially in the second half of the season. 
it was a lot tougher sledding for DeAndre Swift because there just wasn't as much room to operate. Teams were loading up against the run, and that just made life more difficult for him. I think Larry Roundtree kind of suffered a similar fate, but certainly to a higher degree last year. Now, Tyler Bates is a guy that I think is a really, really dangerous weapon for them. He's a guy that I think is more of a new age type player. I think he's a guy that absolutely has a future NFL career. I think both guys, Larry Roundtree and Tyler Beatty, both have NFL careers, but they're different kind of guys. They really complement each other very well. Like I said, Beatty's more of the hybrid type guy, a little slider build. But he, not only is he a good running back, now he, he hasn't really been a dynamic guy out of the backfield in the run game. He has less than 900 yards rushing in two years total. But he was also their second leading receiver on the team last year. Now that might say more about the the lack of talent at the receiver position, that is certainly true. That's fair to say. But I think it also is indicative of what Beatty can be out of the backfield, that kind of hybrid threat that he poses. He actually led them in total receptions. He had 32 catches. That led the team. He was second in receiving yards with 356 yards receiving on the year. So he's a guy that's a dangerous threat, a versatile, multifaceted type threat out of the backfield that really, again, complements Larry Roundtree really well. Their offensive line was a mystery to me last year because like, when you looked at that offensive line preseason, they had some good players up front. They had some guys that really performed well leading into 2019. I mean, heck, Tristan Colin-Castillo and Trevor Wallace-Sims, they were all conference contenders coming into last season, but they were only 97th in yards per rush last year, 74th overall in rushing offense. And now those guys are gone. Their top offensive linemen are gone. They have some guys with starting experience returning, but the top guys off of that unit last year are gone. So it's it's kind of, in that regard, it's kind of tough to imagine that that unit's going to be vastly improved with three of their best players gone. But I will say, again, context here, I do think this is another area where there were some similarities to our team last year. We had three NFL draft picks on our offensive line, and two of those guys were first rounders. But it seemed like, at least the perception at times with our offensive line last year, was that they underperformed at, at points throughout the season. I firmly believe that was more of a function of the fact that we were just so one-dimensional last season, especially the second half of the year, that it made it very difficult to be efficient in the run game. If there are more defenders than there are blockers, it's going to be difficult to consistently be able to run the football with a lot of efficiency. Missouri faced that same issue last year. Brian gets hurt. He comes back. Yeah, but he's a shell of himself when he returns. Still noticeably limping out there. It, it's painful to watch the guy out there try to do anything. His legs were supposed to be a big part of the offense, but that was taken out of the equation. Then you have Albert O, who misses a number of games at tight end, who's really your best threat as a receiver. So all of a sudden, that offensive line seems like it's underperforming, when in reality, you just can't do much for the defense has one or two guys that are unblocked almost every single snap because they do not have to really account for the passing game. But as bad as the run game was for most of the year last year, I do think they have the potential, especially if Sean Robinson wins the quarterback job with his dual threat ability, that will certainly help. But I do think they have the potential to have a much more efficient run game. I'm not going to say it's going to be a dynamic run game. I'm not ready to say that yet. But I think it can certainly be much more efficient and more dangerous if they can just find a way to be more productive in the passing game. I really think that was the issue for them last year like it was for us. So they have good backs. And I think they had some good linemen. And from a scheme standpoint, again, I know this is a small sample size, but from a, a, a scheme standpoint, Eli Drinkwitz has shown the willingness to adapt his scheme and his play calling to fit his personnel, which I think has always been a really important hallmark of great coaches. 
at NC State with Ryan Finley at quarterback, they were much more pass heavy. His offenses there with, with Finley averaged 25th nationally and uh, averaged 282 yards passing per game, but they only averaged the 82nd best rush offense in the country over his three years calling plays for the Wolfpack, averaging only 148 yards a game. They were much more pass happy there, which made sense because that's what they had from a talent perspective. They had a good quarterback, good receivers, and okay running backs. Then in his one year at Appalachian State, he kind of reverses course, and then he features the run game more so than he ever had, much more so than he ever did at NC State. Uh, they averaged 231 yards rushing at Appalachian State last year versus 201 yards passing. Again, that makes sense when you look at the talent they had on hand. He wanted to feature his best offensive player, which clearly was Darrington Evans, who was a third-round pick in the NFL draft this year. So when you have that kind of skill talent, you want to make sure to fit your scheme around that talent. So I think he's done a good job of that. So to me, it makes sense given the fact they have Larry Roundtree and Tyler Beatty and potentially a dual-threat quarterback, that the run game is featured more than the pass game when you also look at that, that they have an underwhelming wide receiver core returning outside of Damon Hazleton, if he can be that guy for them, and questions at quarterback in terms of a guy who can actually throw the ball consistently and make great decisions. Because even if it's Sean Robinson, I still have questions about his decision-making at quarterback. So I think they might actually run the ball more than they did last year and more than they did at NC State when Drinkwitz was calling the plays for the Wolfpack. So that's the offense. I do think they will be better. Uh, again, it's, they're, they're coming from so far down last year that they can't help but be better. I know, I, I know that's lazy to say, but I do think that there are players on that roster that can put up better numbers, especially when you throw in a guy like Damon Hazleton, Sean Robinson coming at quarterback. If they don't have the injuries at quarterback that they had last year with Kelly Bryant, I think they can be actually a, a good bit better offensive. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I do think they will make that improvement with those guys I talked about, with Drinkwitz's ability to put together a really good offense, especially matching it with the personnel he has on him. Now let's flip it over to the other side of the ball and take a look at this Missouri defense. As I mentioned earlier in the show, the Missouri defense last year, they, they were very good. They were not elite, but they were very good. They were 15th nationally in scoring defense. They were 14th nationally in total defense, 18th in yards per play allowed. They were so good, in fact, defensively that Eli Drinkwitz, when he came on board and took the head coaching job, he kept most of the defensive staff on board, including defensive coordinator Ryan Walters, who was kind of a, a protege of Barry Odom's. And if you look at Ryan Walters, I think this guy has done a good job. Now, I also want to give Barry Odom a lot of credit because Barry Odom is a defensive guy by trade, and he really, again, kind of, I don't want to say raised Ryan Walters. That's, that's patronizing. But he certainly helped develop this guy as a defensive coordinator. And, and just like Kirby Smart is still intimately involved with our defensive game planning, Barry Odom was still heavily involved with what they did defensively those past couple years. So I think Walters certainly deserves a lot of credit, but I think you have to also give some credit to Barry Odom as well. But Walters, when he was promoted defensive coordinator, inherited one of the worst defenses in the entire SEC. I think they were 11th in the league when the year before he took over. They gave over 400 yards a game that year. And in two years on the job, by, by last year, he was able to improve their conference standing all the way to third in total defense in the entire SEC, giving up 
312 yards a game. So really, in two years, just about 100 yards per game improvement defensively. That's getting the job done. That's why you keep a guy like Ryan Walters on board. I think it was a really smart move to keep him on board because not only did he do a good job, but there's also some continuity there by keeping him on staff. That also allows you to keep some recruiting continuity. Those things matter. And they also returned 64% of their defensive production from last year. So I think this defense is in a really good position with all the continuity coming back with the coaching staff, a lot of the key players returning, to actually be really good for yet another season here. And, and Walters, again, like he has some really good pieces to work with. Nick Bolton might just be the best linebacker in the SEC. I really mean that, guys. This dude is a stud. And for a guy who's a sucker for good linebacker play, I, I, I get... A lot of enjoyment out of watching this guy play that position. He was all SEC first team last year, although he was a guy that no one was talking about before the season. So it wasn't like that was an award given him based on hype and based on reputation. No one was talking about this guy before the season. And he exploded on the scene. He was the lean tackler in the SEC last year. He's athletic. He's fast. He's explosive. He's powerful. There's one play that stands out in my mind. There's, he made a ton of plays last year, but there's one play more than any other really like just stands out in my mind when I think about the kind of linebacker that this guy is. It was a play against Tennessee. Jawan Jennings lines up as the Wildcat quarterback. He was their uh, their wide receiver, their, their top wide receiver last year for Tennessee. He was also their Wildcat guy. They're on the goal line. I think it was like on the two-yard line, I want to say. So they're going in to score. It looks like they're about to just walk in the end zone there. Jennings takes the ball, goes around, kind of off tackle to the, to the right side line of scrimmage. And out of nowhere, Nick Bolton comes flying. And it looked like Jennings was just going to walk into the end zone. I think Jennings thought he was going to walk into the end zone. But again, out of nowhere comes this bolt. Nick Bolton just flies in there and absolutely destroys Jawan Jennings. And when I say destroys him, I'm talking about knocks him back like two yards, okay? So and that matters when you're in the you're in the inside the five yard line, you're on the goal line there, and they're about to just walk in for a touchdown. If you tackle the guy and he just falls forward, Jawan Jennings is a big dude, by the way. If he just falls forward, it's a touchdown. No, he absolutely destroys him. He obliterates him and knocks him back two yards. Jawan Jennings, I thought he might have got a concussion. He had no idea what just happened to him when you watched that play. So if you can find that play, if you can find that game on YouTube or something, if I remember correctly, I think it was actually like the first play of the second quarter. But if you can find that anywhere, or just maybe look up Nick Bolton hit on Jawan Jennings. You might be able to find it if you, if you do that. But man, like that one clip will give you a really good idea of what that dude Nick Bolton is all about at the linebacker position. He's also pretty good in coverage as well because he's athletic, he's fast. He's a guy that I think is certainly a leading contender for all SEC first team again at the inside linebacker position. That dude is a stud. And then on the interior, you got Kobe Whiteside, who was the top interior pass rusher in the entire league last year, guys. And that's saying something when you're talking about the SEC, which is known for its defensive line play. He had six and a half sacks from the interior defensive line spot last year, which is tough to do, man. That's tough to do in this league. He's actually tied as the leading returning sack man in the league coming into 2020. Just to give you a little perspective on that, he had more sacks than any of our outside linebackers last year, more than Aziz, more than Nolan, more than Jermaine Johnson, more than Adam Anderson, had more sacks than Javon Kinlaw, who was an absolute monster last year, more sacks than Terrell Lewis, outside linebacking pass rusher for Alabama last year. And again, he did that from an interior defensive line spot. Uh, he's kind of a solid off dude, 6'1", 300 pounds, moves really well, can be powerful at times as well. Now, I will say, 
And I'm interested to see how this plays out this year, but he definitely benefited from the presence of Jordan Elliott on, on that line with him last year because Elliott took up a lot of attention, a lot of double teams, and that allowed Whiteside to really kind of be able to operate with a lot more room. With Elliott gone this year, graduating, moving on, and Whiteside now being that guy and being the focal point of what offensive lines are trying to do with their game plan, I'm curious to see if he's going to be as effective, but he's a really good player. Again, he's quick, athletic for, for an interior guy, moves really well. Motor is inconsistent at times, but when that motor is turned on, he can absolutely be a load to handle. So that's another really good piece they had to work with this year. And, and look, I will say last year, they were really good against the pass. And it's weird. Like you would think that it would have been better against the run when you got guys like Nick Bolton and Kobe Whiteside and Jordan Elliott in that front seven. And they weren't bad against the run. They were just better against the pass, which might be surprising. They were actually first in the nation in completion percentage allowed last year, sixth in pass defense overall, ninth in opposing quarterback rating. So obviously, this was a very, very good pass defense. And again, they were good against the run as well, but they were 31st nationally against the run, so just not quite as good as they were against the pass. Now, I don't know if that's going to be the case again this year. They do have both safety starters returning. Tyree Gillespie is the guy for them. He is that dude back there, their version of Richard LeCount in the back end of that secondary. He's the second highest graded returning safety in the league behind, you guessed it, only Richard LeCount. And it was a, it's really close with those two, according to Pro Football Focus, with their grades, they had LeCount graded out as an 80.7 last year and Gillespie at 80.0. So razor thin margin between the two. And when you watch them play, you see a lot of similarities in their game as well. It's not just that their ratings were so close. Gillespie's smart, he's rangy, he's physical and run support. Not the biggest guy in the world, a little bit bigger, maybe an inch taller, about 10 pounds or so heavier than LeCount, but, but similar frames as well. He's really experienced back there. He's got about a year and a half of experience under his belt as a starter. Again, he's, in my opinion, their version of Richard LeCount. And then back there along with him, you got Joshua Bledsoe as his running mate who's returning as well. So safety seems really, really set and very, very solid for them. Cornerback is more of a mystery right now. Demarcus Acey, who was a good player for them for a couple years, he's gone. Christian Holmes is also transferred out. So there's not a ton of returning experience at cornerback. Guy named Jarvis Ware, he's been around for a couple years and has seen some time. He might be in line to to step up as a starter this year. Adam Sparks has been mainly a reserve for them, played a little bit in their star position, their nickel back position. He'll certainly be in the thick of things for a starting spot at cornerback this year. But neither one of those guys, I I don't see them perform at the level of, of AC and Holmes from last year. Now, one guy to really watch out for this year, especially when you're talking about a cornerback unit that doesn't have a ton of elite returning starting experience. Ennis Rakestraw is a true freshman, a huge recruiting win for this Missouri program, for Eli Drinkwitz, trying to piece together that first recruiting class at the end of the cycle there. When they landed Ennis Rakestraw, and by the way, most people thought he was going to Alabama. He had taken an official visit to Alabama just a couple of weeks before signing day. Saban had just visited him a week or two before signing day. So Alabama was all in on this guy late in the process. And we were actually, we kind of kicked the rocks around with him. We couldn't get him on campus for a visit. So we didn't end up really being a major player down the stretch. But Alabama was right there. And I think most people out there thought he was going to go to Alabama because why wouldn't you? If it's down to Alabama and Missouri, like, yeah, let's probably go to Alabama, right? But Missouri pulled the upset there. 
and they ended up landing him. Now, he was only a three-star prospect, but he's a guy that really kind of came on the scene very late in the process, had a really good senior year, and a lot of big-time programs really kind of jumped in late in that cycle. So I think he's probably going to end up being, and I remember watching his tape because we were, again, we were kind of getting involved a little bit late. We threw out an offer to him, so I remember watching that tape. I was like, wow, this guy is, I think he's way better than the three-star prospect. I think he was ranked like in the 800s nationally in the 247 composite. And so when they landed him, there's a video that went viral. Some of you probably saw this, but Eli Drinkwitz is like going nuts in their football offices when Rick Estral goes public. Obviously, it was pretty clear Drinkwitz had no idea that he was going to pick them. And he was watching the announcement ceremony like everyone else. And when he, when he saw him pick Missouri, he just went crazy. It was really kind of fun to watch. So uh, that's a guy, though, with good length, good athleticism. Again, when you don't have a ton of experience returning at cornerback, can certainly make a move this this year and try to find his way into the starting lineup. Now, certainly not having spring practice and having COVID impact the summer training and all that, that certainly throws a wrinkle in his plans. But I think there might be an opportunity for him to come in there and, and get some early playing time and eventually work his way into a starting job. I think he's going to be a really good player for them for the next couple of years. But with core pieces returning along with most of the defensive staff returning intact, I really, again, expect this defense to be a top 25 caliber defense once again in 2020. I think this season for Missouri is really going to come down to how much Eli Drinkwitz can get out of a revamped offense. It's a fast-paced, no-huddle type attack. At least that's what he's run in the past. He likes to shift. He likes to motion a lot like Gus Malzahn does. He did get that from him with, with his time working with Malzahn. But he's also shown the ability to create a far more effective pass game than Malzahn has. So if Drinkwitz can get a quarterback ready to play, and again, I'd put my money on that guy being Sean Robinson, but if he can develop a quarterback this year in limited time, and kind of jumpstart their passing game just enough to at least pose a legitimate threat to other defenses. To go along with that strong duo of Roundtree and Beatty in the backfield, I think this Missouri team could be better than most people expect them to be. You know, last year, again, they disappointed. I think this year is a year they might actually surprise some people. Now, saying that, the schedule makes it unlikely that they will improve on last year's record. I think you have to say that. I mean, they drew Bama and LSU out of the West with their two additional non-divisional games, those cross-divisional games. So that's a that literally is about as tough of a draw as you can possibly get. But I do think this team, despite the schedule, has enough pieces to be good enough to sneak up on somebody if that somebody isn't ready to play. Upsets happen in college football. I'm not saying Missouri is going to be uh, a contender for the SEC East. I'm not going to say they're going to go 7-3 and three or anything like that. I'm not going to make those kind of proclamations. But I do think if you look at the pieces they have on defense and on offense, if they get just some, some competent quarterback play, they can stay healthy. I think they have enough pieces, enough talent to sneak up on somebody if if you don't take them seriously. like They could win at Tennessee or, or maybe even at Florida. That's certainly a stretch. But if those teams aren't ready to play, even those teams probably have, not probably, they do have more overall talent than Missouri has right now. If those teams aren't ready to play, I think they could could have a chance to, to pull an upset somewhere along the way. And, and, you know, obviously we have to travel to, to Columbia this year. And I think they could give us more of a game than we expect. I think we're too talented to lose that game. But they have enough pieces to push us a little bit if we don't play well. Kind of like what we saw in 2018. You know, we went up to over to Missouri Played well in the first half, and, and, and things kind of 
muddied up for us in the second half, and they and they pulled within uh, two touchdowns late in that game, and, and we're trying to make a game of it because we didn't play well in the second half. But at the end of the day, we were just too talented. We just had too much talent, and and they couldn't pull the overall upset. Which I, I think you can see something like that again if we aren't ready to play. Now, if we come out and we we play our our, our best game, then then we will roll them. That's just where we are right now, where they are right now. But again, I think they are a team that, that can pull an upset somewhere. They'll probably finish, you know, four and six. I think five and five, probably a like best case scenario for them right now, just when you look at that schedule. But I do think it's the team that even though the schedule might not show it, they might only finish around 500 or slightly under 500 again this year with, an, with, a, with a full conference only schedule. I think you're going to watch this team this year and say, yeah, they're better than the Missouri team I saw down the stretch last year, which I think in year one, with all the craziness and the circumstances surrounding us with, with the coronavirus right now and not having a spring practice and that whole deal, I think that's about as good as you can expect from Eli Drinkwitz and, and this new Missouri coaching staff in year one. So that's it for me today here, guys, on the Glory UGA podcast. That's the Missouri Breakdown. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. hope you feel like you know a little bit more about this Missouri program. We will continue to produce these Scouting the Enemy episodes throughout the next month as we get closer and closer to the 2020 football season. Please, dear God, let that happen. But uh, we will definitely be back. We've still got a bunch of teams to do. We've got to talk about Tennessee. We've got South Carolina. We've got, of course, we've got Arkansas, Mississippi State, those teams I've just been added to the schedule. Still have a lot of teams up the rest of the way, so we'll have that covered for you guys over the next couple of the weeks. And we also are going to be running our final listener mailbag of this extraordinarily long and frustrating offseason. We'll be doing that later this week, so if you haven't sent any questions, please make sure to get your questions into us. You can hit us up on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can also email those questions to us. That's podcast at gmail.com. And like always, we will cover each and every question that we get. If that means that we have to stretch it out over more than one episode, then that is absolutely what we'll do. We'll make sure to get to each and every question So hit us up, guys, and we will get you taken care of. But thanks for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm Tyler. Curse will be back with me later on this week. And as always, go dogs.